0: I'd like to tell you about Charles Thompson. Born in Derry, Ireland, he is widely considered to be Samuel Adams' counterpart in Philadelphia during the years before the American Revolution. While Adams raised concerns about the British oppression in Boston, Thompson raised the same alarm in Philly. When the Continental Congress was formed before the war, he served as its secretary, and remained in that position for the entirety of the Congress's existence. Though there was not an official American president until 1789 with the inauguration of George Washington, there was a president of the Congress, effectively the leader of this growing nation's government. At several times during the war, and especially between 1786 and the official presidency of Washington, Thompson served that role, the highest office. He offered the job to Washington, who became the first true president. Thompson also wrote the final draft of the Declaration of Independence, read it before Congress, and even stepped up during the drafting of the first American Constitution to say that slavery must not be allowed within this country. Thompson was at the forefront of the American experiment in its very earliest days, clearly the person that the more famous figures in history would turn to when they needed a problem solved. In perhaps the most famous example of this, three of the most important figures in American history came to Thompson to solve a task they were trying to sort out. They were Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams. They had been given a job. They were tasked to design a seal of the great nation they were trying to create. They could not quite sort it out, unable to settle on a final option. It was kicked around amongst these very important men, each one trying out a different version, then failing, then kicking it to the next person. Eventually, after literally six years, it wound up on the desk of Charles Thompson, the secretary of the Continental Congress. He'd received a design proposition from a lawyer named William Barton, who suggested placing an eagle in the center of the seal. This was reminiscent of the Roman legions back in ancient times, who used the eagle as their symbol of power. If the Romans were a democracy and they bore an eagle as their symbol, then why should this new democracy not try the same? Thompson agreed, but changed one tiny detail. Instead of a generic eagle, perhaps a golden eagle, why not go for a native bird on this continent? He changed it to the American Bald Eagle. In a crude sketch, he presented a familiar design for the seal. A bald eagle, a ribbon reading E Pluribus Unum on it meaning out of many one, with an American flag-inspired shield in the middle, an olive branch in the left claw, and a bushel of arrows in the right. It was made official on June 20th, 1782, and with its ratification, the bald eagle passed from a commonly seen bird of prey into the American lexicon as our national bird. Last spring, in the early days of quarantine, I would take walks around my old apartment, exploring the nearby osprey nests, marveling at their resilience and beauty. I spoke with Laura Von Mutius at the Audubon Center for Birds of Prey, who told me a fact about our birds in Florida that I haven't been able to shake ever since. Along with ospreys and falcons and owls, Florida has a massive population of bald eagles. I'm not sure why I found that so unbelievable, it just didn't feel right, but It's true. And in fact, according to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, quote, Florida has one of the densest concentrations of nesting bald eagles in the lower 48 states, end quote. I mean, I trust FWC, but that is preposterous. That's so many bald eagles and not to sound like a skeptic, but I couldn't see them. So I didn't believe it. And then one day I was driving home and a beautiful orange sunset filled my view. Lo and behold, flying down from above, its body bigger than I ever could have imagined, was an American bald eagle, its white feathers glowing in the orange dusk sunlight. Florida is home to this bird, making nests here year-round in some cases. But as I soon learned, there was almost a time where there were no bald eagles at all. I'm Nick DeLisandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week the bald eagles of Florida, how we nearly lost them, and how we keep an eye on them to this very day. My guest is Sean Lee Breeding of Audubon, Florida.
1: My name is Sean Lee Breeding. I'm the Audubon, Florida Eagle Watch Program
0: Manager. Sean Lee has a degree in zoology and was working for nonprofits for a while, only to realize how much she wanted to work with animals. So she started working with the Brevard Zoo, then spent a few years at Disney's Animal Kingdom, which I asked her a million questions about off mic. She then got her Master's in Conservation Biology, and then a few years ago started working with Audubon, Florida. Laura Von Mutius actually sent me over to Sean Lee, who chatted with me about all things Bald Eagle on, ironically, Inauguration Day. Sean Lee is in charge of a program called Eagle Watch, but we'll come back to that in a bit. She uses one word to describe the appearance of a bald eagle, unmistakable. Well, they are a majestic raptor, um, one of our
1: larger birds of prey that you'll see in we don't have golden eagles in Florida, and technically I think they're considered a little bit larger than bald eagles based on perhaps wingspan. But, you know, bald eagles in general, their wingspan is 6 to 8 feet. It's a large brown bird with a white head and tail if they are in their adult plumage. And a lot of people don't realize, and I don't think I even knew this, that um, when they first leave the nest, bald eagles are completely brown. They'll have those yellow legs right then, but their beak and their eyes are brown and their head and tail are brown. And then over the next year, every year, they shed or mold their feathers and they grow in new feathers until they transition to that adult plumage which you you know, know from all of your you know, pictures of the national emblem, it's the white head and tail, yellow feet, yellow beak. Here in Florida, our eagles are also a little bit smaller than the northern population. As you head north with many species, the, the body size gets larger to compensate for heat loss. So our eagles here, the males are smaller actually, and this is true of all birds of prey. Uh, males are smaller than the female in birds of prey. And the male might weigh, a male eagle might weigh six to eight pounds, and then a female might weigh 10 to 12 pounds. And if you head up to Alaska, of course, they're substantially larger, so a female could be, you know, 14 to 16 pounds or more. Um, So it's definitely a large bird. You see it soaring in the sky. Um, It's one of the bigger birds you'll see up there flying overhead. Um, But generally, if you get some binoculars and can spot them, or if you see them even from a distance, they're fairly unmistakable with that, you know, white head and tail.
0: Real quick, isn't that amazing? Bald eagles are smaller in Florida because in colder climates, they need to be larger in order to stay warmer. Nature is incredible. Sean Lee tells me that you can find that in all sorts of species. Squirrels, deer, and more are all much larger further north than they are here in Florida. Sean Lee reminds me how much we have in common with Alaska, as bizarre as that may sound. If How can they live in... At Alaska, of frozen tundra, and also live in massive population in a subtropical climate. How, how can that be true for the same sort of species of animals?
1: Well, you know, a lot, habitat and range often comes down to, you know, we often think of the weather, what a difference in weather, but we do share a lot of similar things with them, you know, weather aside, and, you know, animals, when they're looking for species looking for a place to be prolific they're looking for a place that has you know a good food source that has um, enough space for them good places for them to raise their family suitable habitat for foraging and, and things like that and florida definitely hits all of those marks for bald eagles we you know historically before the population you know our population boomed with humans here it was a nice natural habitat with lots of water lots of water and not that many people in areas until, you know, air conditioning came along and they drained a lot of the wetlands down south to build homes and things. You know, if you think about what it used to be like, it was kind of a, a haven for birds that eat fish and birds that eat other birds. There were lots of birds here.
0: Bald eagles live well here in our state, despite the lack of cold weather, thanks to the plentiful water, which means, of course, plentiful fish. You know,
1: they're going to eat meat like all birds of prey. They don't, you know, really eat fruit seeds or anything like that. They're pretty much all, you know, carnivore there, but um, they're not too picky when it comes to what they eat, anything that has meat on it. The iconic photo, of course, you always think of the bald eagle scooping the fish out of the lake, and they do eat a lot of fish. They also eat a lot of waterfowl, different species of birds that live on the water, but they'll eat, you know, turtles, snakes, lizards, rodents, rabbits and they're also prone to eating roadkill, so they'll often be on the side of the road with vultures arguing over dead animals on the side of the road which is unfortunately where they sometimes get in trouble in our state we have so much traffic
0: now in a normal episode of this show when we talk about animals we talk about the dangers facing them at the end of the show but it's important to understand where we're coming from to understand the bald eagles in florida we actually have to start at the end
1: Well, you know, there were a lot of different human impacts in the early years. Um, It wasn't legal back then to shoot them, so a lot of farmers and fishermen and hunters were shooting them um, for various reasons.
0: In the 20th century, our bald eagles were facing an existential threat.
1: Of course, you know, people were moving across, draining wetlands, cutting down trees, establishing cities, and all the things that come along with people. But, you know, the other big issue was introduced in the early 1900s was the pesticide DDT. Um, which was a miracle cure for killing mosquitoes which was important you know the mosquitoes spread a lot of disease but no one really understood when it was introduced that it would have such a horrible impact on the environment and specifically a lot of
0: birds DDT, which is a shortened acronym of a very long scientific name, is synthetic insecticide, specifically designed to fight mosquitoes and their impact on humans and agriculture. Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, came out in 1962 and effectively brought awareness to the extreme danger of DDT as a substance. It not only damaged natural ecosystems, but it also seriously impacted the health of humans and animals. The Environmental Protection Agency cracked down on DDT in the 70s, but for many animal populations, the damage was done.
1: Bird species like bald eagles that are at the top of the food chain, anytime you have a toxin in the environment, it concentrates at the top because they're feeding on the things that are feeding on the things that are feeding on the things. And uh, it just rises up. And so, especially anything that's fed on a water-based diet like fish or you know waterfowl, because that's where the toxin was you know, running off into the wild from the crops and things. And specifically with bald eagles, it was causing their eggs to not be viable. So either their eggs would be so thin-shelled that the chicks, you know, the shell wouldn't survive till the chick could hatch properly or they would be thin-shelled, which is kind of like a rubbery Um, It's interesting if you ever see a thin-shelled egg, but the chick, the embryo, couldn't develop properly without the proper calcium shell around it. So, you know, if you're not having any babies, the population is obviously going to be circling the drain because you're not adding to it every year. So that was kind of what happened. So finally people realized it was DDT and, you know, people shooting them. And so putting them on the list of threatened and endangered species at the federal level in the early 70s was the the main first step. So you couldn't shoot them anymore. You couldn't chop down their nest tree. You still can't cut down their nest tree. It's still protected, but um, DDT was banned, and so those things were major.
0: To put that into specific numbers, the U.S. Department of Agriculture puts it like this. Before the colonization of America, scientists believed there was something close to 50,000 breeding pairs of bald eagles. By the time DDT had reached its peak, bald eagles were being hunted around the country, and the breeding pairs had dropped at their lowest to 400. That is about 0.8% of that original population. Just less than 1%. That is unbelievable. And then, in 1972, DDT was banned. This turned things around for a lot of animals, including the bald eagle. Hunting eagles had actually been illegal since 1940, but DDT was really the last major deterrent to keeping the eagle population safe. Now, in the mid-20th century, things were looking up. There was enough of a population of bald eagles in places like Alaska that populations were able to sprout up again in areas where they once were across the United States, including here in Florida. They were removed
1: from the the federal list of threatened and endangered species in 2007, but um, they are still protected by state and federal laws, and the main law that protects them is the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, which, you know, it's illegal to harm them, shoot them, you know, cut down their nest tree, you can't disturb them while they're nesting, it's a federal violation if you're doing work near the nest that causes them to abandon the nest, which is the main issue we deal with here in Florida and specifically with my program as we're monitoring nests, looking out for those potential disturbances. So um, they are still you know, heavily protected. Uh, even their body parts are protected. I didn't really realize that until I came to this role. You know, It's illegal to keep a feather, and if you find a deceased bald eagle, the body has to be properly disposed of. There's a repository in Colorado where they keep all of the body parts and the bodies,
0: and they offer them to Native Americans because they are part of their religious rituals. I had never heard of the repository that Sean Lee mentions here, but it's true. It's the National Eagle Repository in Denver, Colorado. Because bald eagles are so essential to many religions and cultures for some indigenous peoples in this land, a repository is operated by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, where feathers and other parts of bald eagles are given to people who use the parts as part of their cultural heritage. In so many ways, in the last 50 years, our country has pivoted the ways in which we care for our bald eagles. In many ways, it is one of the most comprehensive conservation and recovery projects I've ever talked about on this show. The bald eagles are an unequivocal success story in the United States, and that is due in no small part to the work of civilian bird watchers and passionate amateur conservationists.
1: So Audubon kind of started the whole concept over 100 years ago with the Christmas bird count. And um, these were, you know, groups of people that loved birds and watched birds and would go out and uh, during the Christmas period and count birds and tally them and share the data. And that data set is over 100 years old now, and it really does give us some amazing insight into trends with birds, you know, if you can imagine the changes in our country over 100 years. So, But they really kind of started that, just regular people going out and collecting data and helping biologists and scientists
0: know how the environment is doing. The Christmas Bird Count is one of the most important and perhaps the most original community-focused biology projects. It began over a century ago, back in the last decades of the 1800s. Across North America, every Christmas day, teams of hunters would prepare for a unique competition. They'd head out into the wild and shoot every tiny animal, and more importantly, every bird that appeared before them. By the time the hunt was done, hunters would gather their kills together and a winner would be named by the tally of the final pull. As the years wore on and this game, called the Christmas Side Hunt, continued to occur, early conservationists noted the dangers of this incessant and unnecessary sport. Hunting is one thing, important in its own way, but this was killing just for fun. Frank M. Chapman, however, had another idea. He was an ornithologist, meaning he studied birds. He was an early member of what would become the Audubon Society, and he frequently visited Florida, though he worked year round at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. He proposed something new in 1900. Rather than hunting down the birds, what if we just looked at them and wrote down what we saw? How many? How many species? It started slow at first, only a few dozen people participating that first year, but the core idea there resonated. What if, instead of hunting every Christmas, the community stepped outside and just looked? They tracked the birds and shared them with one another, creating a collective number of just how many birds there were. It became an immediately popular means of tracking birds yearly and everyone could participate. You didn't need to be an ornithologist or a conservationist. So long as you had a passion for the birds, you could go out and spend your Christmas searching for our feathered friends. Last year, obviously, the 120th Christmas bird count was odd due to the pandemic, and though it was still a successful study, it's perhaps more illuminative to check out the 2019 results. The 119th bird count included work from nearly 80,000 observers from across North and Central America. All told, the observers were able to spot 2,638 individual bird species and roughly 48.7 million individual birds. Now, that is part of a downward trend of bird populations, as scientists have recently noticed a continent-wide decrease in bird populations. But that's exactly why the bird count exists. Good news or bad, the entire reason that Audubon hosts this sort of project is to go outside and see what we can see. If there's less, there's less. That's the news. That's why it's done. And though obviously a lot factors into that, that sort of raw data simply cannot be found any other way. It's a unique and amazing practice done every year. And in Lee Breeding's work, she uses the exact same principle on a much smaller scale. She is not just looking for any old bird, she's looking for Florida's bald eagles, and she relies on her citizen scientists to keep them safe. Eagle Watch
1: started um, in 1992, and it was... A handful of concerns, you know, local residents who, at that time, of course, the bald eagle was still listed as threatened or endangered, Um, and so they were concerned about the changes in Florida in the 90s. I moved here at that time frame, and I know, you know, a lot of development was going on and making sure that eagles had a safe place to raise their young, because we do have one of the largest populations of breeding bald eagles outside of Alaska here in Florida, and I didn't even know that until I came to this role, so, you know, Learning about birds is a lifelong journey for sure.
0: (laughs) Real quick, the numbers here are important. It's estimated by the Alaska state government that bald eagles live in Alaska more than anywhere else in the country. 30,000 bald eagles. It's nearly impossible to meet that population anywhere else in the country, but three states make up a huge density, though nowhere near as intense as Alaska. Minnesota is perhaps the most, with around 9,800 breeding pairs. Wisconsin is the second most, just under 1,700 occupied nests. That is significantly less than Minnesota, but nevertheless, their population is still high comparatively. Florida is third, with around 1500 breeding pairs by the way when we say breeding pairs or nesting pairs that is not an accurate summation of the entire population of bald eagles but it's hard to get an accurate number but those breeding pairs and those nesting pairs that is a good measure of just about how many active families that we have of bald eagles in the state at a time it's not perfect but Sean Lee says it's good enough for the research so we need eagle watch to keep an eye on our birds
1: But they just wanted to make sure that the eagles, you know, they were watching the nest and making sure they were doing well. So there was 22 volunteers and three central Florida counties that started going out and monitoring nests and collecting their data and sharing it with state and federal wildlife biologists. And the program just kind of grew over time. This last season, we had uh, about 480 volunteers monitoring over 800 nests around the state. We're active in about 46 45, 46 of the counties in Florida and there are 67 counties total. So it's grown into quite a large program, a lot of dedicated just people like you and me who do this in their spare time, go out on the weekend and watch nests and put their data into our database and we collect it and analyze it every
0: year. They're watching, tracking numbers, supporting organizations like Florida Fish and Wildlife, and even helping bald eagles if they may be in danger. Lee has only been in charge of Eagle Watch for four years, but she has seen how significant the work she's done is on the eagle populations.
1: You know, there's the volunteer aspect and then the conservation side of it and the data part of it, and we do mapping and GIS and all of that, so uh, it's never a dull moment, that's for sure, and being at the Center for Birds of Prey as well, my office coordinates with the clinic staff, you know, we get in. Our raptor trauma clinic here takes in almost 800 birds of prey each year that are sick or injured and about 70 to 80 of those are bald eagles that come in for various reasons and you know, I work with the clinic staff when we are ready to release those birds back in the wild to try and find a safe spot for them or it's a chick that blew out of the nest you know try to get it back to its nest or find another nest to put it in so lots of fascinating aspects to the program that most people probably don't
0: even think about that go on <laughs> but yeah it's definitely interesting. And there's a lot that is out of Sean Lee's control. No matter how much Eagle Watch does, you cannot watch them every waking second and things just happen. There are some obvious things, natural things like territory fights. Bald eagles come back to the same area for nesting seasons and if a new bird is in their territory, it gets a little dangerous.
1: Territory fights at the start of the season as eagles are defending their territory from interlopers and um, they will fight to the death. You know, it's not like a mock, hey, just go away. It's serious. Um, And we do get eagles with serious injuries and some of them, you know, don't survive from those territory
0: fights. In fact, sometimes bald eagles get into conflicts with other birds of prey, including ospreys and owls. Great horned owls actually take over empty eagles' nests. The bald eagles also face car strikes, electrocutions, storms endangering nests, toxins like lead, eagles being poisoned by eating euthanized animals and landfills, rodenticide, fishing line, fishing hooks. Left, right, and center, the bald eagles are facing danger wherever they go and whatever they do. So naturally, they've had to adapt. They're learning to live. You know, we have a lot of eagles in
1: urban areas. There, there are eagle nests right here in you know, the center of Orlando. It's crazy. You just look over there and there's a bald eagle foraging in the retention pond in the middle of an off-ramp for a crazy toll road, but their adaptability is good, but it does sometimes put them at the edge of some of these dangerous issues they have to deal with because of us.
0: And while some birds migrate in and out of Florida, some bald eagles just live here year round. It's just the best place for them. It's right despite everything. For some bald eagles, this is their place. And we Floridians have made a point to ensure that. We have worked to make this place work for them, despite all the threats they face. Audubon Florida doesn't just operate Eagle Watch, they also take in injured eagles and patch them up. They are then released back into the wild, usually after Audubon takes care of them. There are also artificial structures all around the state to help them build their important nests. We nearly lost them once, less than a hundred years ago. They were nearly wiped off the continent. But they are back And they are growing. And now that they're protected, it's up to us to keep that protection going, to keep that defense alive. It's a lot of work and many dedicated people are necessary to get the job done, but Sean Lee says the birds are resilient. Though their personalities are unique, especially the ones that live in residence at the Birds of Prey Center, they share a few common behavioral traits that Sean Lee shared with me. We have um,
1: ambassador birds of prey here at the center that we've had since they were young, and they've been trained to um, with falconry equipment. They come out on the glove, and we can do presentations and talk to people. So we have uh, several bald eagles in our ambassador program, and each of them is slightly different. You know, they have their own personalities, but um, you know, they're I'll say. You know, it's kind of, they're kind of a dichotomy. On one side, they're very fierce, but on the other side, they can be kind of doofy, as I like to say. Um, You know, they're they're very hardwired and kind of single-minded. You know, we tend to get really concerned that hurricanes blow through and we're, you know, pulling our hair out about whether the nest is going to fall and what's going to happen. And, um, you know, sometimes these tragedies happen and we're, like, overwhelmed emotionally thinking about it. But the birds really just, you know, they live for today. They think about today and they carry on, and so they might lose their nest and they just, you know, kind of theoretically shrug and go build another nest in the next tree over. And, um, you know, so I think that's what I really appreciate about them is their resilience. You know, they just carry on, do their thing, they, you know, breed, nest, you know, occasionally they are monogamous generally as long as the mate is still available, but if they lose the mate to some catastrophe, you know, electrocution or car strike or whatever, you know, they'll take another mate and carry on. So they just, um, I don't know, I think I like that aspect of them. They remind me that I take life a little too seriously sometimes and I can get overwrought and caught in the weeds of worrying and anxiety. And um, I always tell myself I need to take a lesson from them and just, you know, say, all right, On to the
0: next thing. I really like that mentality. I think I'll keep it in mind myself. Whenever things get a little too much, I'll think like a bald eagle and think, all right, on to the next thing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to this show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. I have a very similar episode to this one about Sandhill Cranes in Florida, and you can listen to my episode with Laura Von Mutius about Florida's fascinating relationship with our Ospreys. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and it means the world to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFM Nick. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Sean Lee Breeding from Audubon, Florida, Birds of Prey Center. Her work is amazing. And if you want to read more about Eagle Watch and perhaps volunteer with them, there's a link below to get involved. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. All right, next week. I want to tell you about a bookstore that I discovered by sheer random chance and its fascinating quests to save books from extinction. That'll be next Monday. Until then, I'm Nick DeLisandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. And please, drink more water. Have a good week.